Staying Alive in Paragliding, a podcast series with your host, Steph Juncker from Cape Town, South Africa, the owner of Parapax Tandem Paragliding and a competition pilot of 23 years. Real podcasts for real pilots to learn from, to laugh at, and to enjoy the funny and crazy stories that go with it. And on the line from Holland, uh, we have a spectacular pilot amongst pilots, uh, Remco Bolt, uh, a man who needs very little introduction to those who talk about getting to goal surely and safely in um, piloting. Uh, Remco, I asked to send his CV to me or some kind of uh, introduction that he would like. And he sent me the following. He said, answering your first question, Steph, you know, I hate to brag, Uh, But for you, I make an exception. To introduce me, pick whatever you like from the list below. I'm a retired fighter pilot, military instructor pilot, flown 250 plus hours in military trainers and 1,500 plus hours in an F-16 fighting Falcon, also in actual combat in the Yugoslavia conflict. Currently, I'm an airline pilot with 6,000 plus hours in various commercial planes on continental and in intercontinental um, flights. I nearly said incontinent. I did 500 plus skydives and was one of the team leaders of the 2003, 2005, 2007 canopy formation world record still standing at 100 pilots. I started flying paragliders in 2007, flew 1300 hours, did 30 competitions and ended top 10 nine times so nine times out of 30 you've ended in the top 10 in competitions and you've been in the top 200 pilots in the world congratulations Remco super nice to have you on board I'm going to start with my very first question um tell us how you're doing in Holland tell us what is the most exciting thing you've ever flown yes um um hello to everyone and hi Steph thanks for uh, inviting me for this uh, podcast um um, so first question, what's the most exciting flight you've ever flown? Well, that, that is really a difficult uh, question because um, um, to, to, to single out just a, a single one of them is, is almost impossible. Um, I've flown uh, so many various things and so many. Um, so, so, so to pick one is is, uh, is is impossible for me. So you have to be a little bit more specific with, with your question, if you can. I'll, re- I'll rephrase the question then. I, let's say, is it more fun to fly a fighter jet? Because obviously many, many people who are in flying are perving or dreaming of getting into such a fighter jet. Or is it nice to bum around on a paraglider even uh, with hairy, scary thermals of uh, 10, 12 meters a second. What, what, what turns you on? Okay, that's uh, that's very interesting that you ask that because I've I've bef- uh, some people that y- you can actually compare competition paragliding with flying F-16 in in, in big, uh, large-scale uh, training missions. The, um, the complexity of both of these um, things is is very, very comparable. Um, when you have big PWCs with uh, between 100 and 150 pilots and all the dynamics that's going on between trying to keep track of where everybody is and reading the conditions and trying to master like a hairy snake thermal uh, working collapses is very, very comparable to 
pulling 9Gs in an F-16 while you're trying to keep track of the other 100 players in, in a large-scale um, training mission. So actually paragliding is very, very similar to uh, flying a fighter jet. Wow. I never thought I'd ever hear somebody say that, but uh, that's, quite, that's quite cool to hear. So it's kind of sobering for me. Um, because I've never flown in a fighter jet. I've, um, of course, I'm, I'm bloody bored in when I sit with you as the pilot and uh, all the girls are, um, how would you say, rushing to give you a coffee and the rest there in the cockpit on a KLM flight. I'm bored as hell. Um, I don't get excited by that. I have to say, even a small aeroplane or a microlight um, pales in comparison to cranking one up in a, a thermal. So let's talk about Yugoslavia. What happened there? Well, Yugoslavia is is um, is quite a strange uh, situation. Um, I had one of I had one of the really really exciting flights I had in Yugoslavia was when um, we were dropping Mark 84s into um, into an ammunition uh, uh, site in uh, in former Yugoslavia, and I actually saw my first Mark 84 explode, real live one, which 2,000 pound bomb. And it really blew my mind away. And I didn't realize that it was not the explosion of the Mark 84 that was so big, but we had we had this Easter egg in, in one of these ammunition bunker. And it blew it blew up and it was it looked similar like a big uh, atomic bomb. It had a mushroom which went past our own flying level and, and reached probably twice as high as we were flying at the moment. And we were flying around 20,000 feet. So uh, that's like seven kilometers at, at that moment. But the whole conflict to me was, was it had uh, two sides. One, one side was exciting because we, um, we actually were in a very nice hotel in, in Italy uh, near the Garda Lake and uh, doing combat missions into Yugoslavia, which was exciting. But on the other hand, the conflict itself was, of course, not so nice. And one of the things I learned there is that the war actually didn't help the local people. It was supposed to be a peacekeeping mission and we were supposed to help the the, the people of Croatia and Yugos former Yugoslavia and actually it turned out that uh, we ended up, as, as NATO, ended up destroying the whole country, uh, dropping bombs on various uh, sites, uh, really didn't solve any, any problems and the only people that got better from it were those people that actually manufactured uh, all the weapons that we were uh, using. Later on, the investors that went into uh, form Yugoslavia to rebuild the country. So uh, actually it had a bit of a bitter aftertaste for me. I had the great pleasure of traveling in all of those Yugoslavian countries, both before the conflict in 1989-1990 and afterwards uh, several times. Firm friends of mine in Slovenia, in Croatia, even now in Bosnia, uh, Montenegro, Macedonia. What beautiful, brilliant countries to go and fly. And in, I'm sure you've had the uh, pleasure of flying in several of those countries. What an absolute delight. Anybody who doesn't know the former Yugoslavian countries for paragliding, better bloody go and check it out. It's super, super cool and um, uh, fly in those countries. A beautiful country like Montenegro, uh, where Peter um, is running a tandem operation and will happily welcome anybody for a visit. I started paragliding because I, I picked up the idea of ground launching my, my skydiving canopy in, in the Alps. And um, I, 
I figured that before I do that, maybe I should um, uh, read a little bit into it. So I started to visiting some websites about paragliding and actually um, trying to get some information on it. And so I realized that it's probably the best thing to just start a course um, on proper paragliding <laughs> instead of trying to ground ground large launch a skydiving canopy from a mountain somewhere and um i, st I still remember like like yesterday when when i flew into my first thermal and that feeling that of being lifted by the air around you like a like a bird of prey in, in the sky um it was just and i wasn't even flying with uh, with the vario at, at that moment we were flying uh, in the site uh, in saint hilaire Maybe you've uh, you've visited it. It has like a vertical rock wall uh, below yeah. takeoff that makes it really easy for you to see that you are actually climbing. So I was climbing out from that wall and ended up 750 meters above takeoff on on one of my first flying lessons. So um, and that feeling of being lifted by a thermal, it is just it it, it always it's just magnificent. It's difficult to describe how great that is. Listening to you brings back such great memories of my early flying days in 1996. And I tell you what, uh, it's, I don't think that we will ever, I mean, we're all doing our nut here in lockdown, uh, most of us being stopped from flying. Yesterday, chatting to Davide Licini in Switzerland, and he was kind of giggling um, while two days ago, Daniel Tirkas was telling me he's looking at the sky, perving, and just absolutely having to hold the monkey down because he can't go out and paraglide. I mean, uh, really, really crazy times we're going through. A little earlier today, you told me that you've got a couple of really nice stories to tell. Fire away. One of one of our good, my good memories is, um, I've, I've got my list in front of me and I have to, to see, but it was probably uh, in Valle de Bravo. Um, we were flying, I was flying tandem with my, with my, um, with my girlfriend we were flying along the ridge and it was it was difficult conditions it was windy and the wind was like parallel to the to the mountain and we got stuck in some nasty hole somewhere and we were fighting to get through the inversion we didn't have any landing options so i couldn't take a lot of risk of of being of falling out of the thermal so we ended up landing in a small field so we were walking down um, towards some town and we got picked up by a farmer sitting on the back of a little tractor trailer and we ended up in town and trying to figure out how to get back to our place where we were staying and worried because we had been warned about um, crime and and drug lords over there in the area and so we were a little bit scared actually and there was like this group of people that uh, was hanging around at the church and uh, we were basically scared of being robbed and and then they spotted us and started started waving at, at us and they came running over and next next thing i know we were invited into a into, into a kia party <laughs> so <laughs> little boy was sent away and a half a minute later he came running back with some extra cups which were filled uh, out of a bottle with a worm in it and um to be honest, uh, I don't remember a lot of uh, the, rest, the rest of that evening. But what I do remember is that we, we I don't know how many hours we were drinking tequila there and trying to talk uh, in our broken up Spanish. And 
making friends. And then we decided we wanted to go home. So we asked the guys if they could call us a taxi. So, uh, yeah, yeah, no problem, they said. So come with me, come with me. So this guy uh, walks us towards a taxi car and tells us to get in. So we're getting in the taxi. And then to our big surprise, he gets behind the wheel. <laughs> and he's completely drunk like <laughs> So I don't know if you remember the roads in some some of these parts around Vaya. They were like winding, 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 endless winding roads through little valleys and and sitting drunk in in a taxi with a drunken driver driving us back to uh, to Vaya. That was uh, <laughs> that was quite a thing I remember from from that flight. I hope he was driving like a true Christian and not like a reckless, how would we say, um, where is the worst driving in the world? Cairo, uh, Bangkok, um, India? I, would, I yeah. would say Brazil, actually, but... Um... Oh, okay. <laughs> All right, so that's one for the Brazilians uh, listening to this podcast. Uh, uh, Remco Bold reckons you have the worst driving in the world. I like it. Give us another story, Remco. Arrested in Iran is catching my eye. I was... Um, Actually, on one of my first competitions, which was actually in uh, the the Winelands Open over at your place, uh, Steph, in um, in Porterville, K1 uh, Aryanpur, who is an Iranian guy. Uh, when KLM started to fly into Tehran, I took the opportunity to visit him, and uh, he took me flying. Uh, we went to this uh, beautiful site, which is called Roch. Amazing flying there. We after some rough uh, fucking around uh, down low, we uh, we we took a strong climb all the way up to six thousand meters and started across country. Yeah, the airspace in Iran is a little bit tricky, and there's some places that you don't want to end up, uh, especially if they have like um, um, nuclear sites and stuff like that. So uh, my friend decided that it's time to land, and it was like midday. The thermals were really nasty and roaring and we're trying to land uh, in this crazy place which felt like a washing machine and he specifically told me that um, i should land right next to him because of um, all the um, the tension that was going on in iran uh, with um, various groups active and so he landed in front of me and i wanted to land right next to him and then a dust devil picked up right on the spot where he landed so actually i i had to veer off a little bit and i landed just out of sight behind another wheel, uh, hill so i landed there and a little guy on a, on a motorcycle came driving i saw i saw him in the distance so i waved at him in a friendly way and uh, he just turned around and drove off and next thing i know is that um a military vehicle pulled up with people uh, like an open jeep or something with people in the back with actually, actually with guns so uh, we got arrested straight away and and uh, they thought we were terrorists because we had um, cameras and gps's and radios and <laughs> exciting moment there uh, with guys actually pointing uh, weapons at us and so they took us to the to the police station I had a little problem because I, I was I flew in that day on a, on a crew visa, which is like a, a crew a piece of paper that that only the the captain keeps, and I I forgot to make a copy of it. So actually, I didn't even have a passport with a valid entry visa, <laughs> which made things really really complicated. After the first scary moments, um, luckily we found out that Iranian people are very very nice people very helpful very 
um, in Dutch we say gastvrij. I, I can't uh, think of the English word. Yeah, very hospitable. So police and the military were, were not interested in, in giving us a hard time. They just wanted to resolve the matter in, in a proper way. So they went really out of their way to, to help us out. And um, so I had actually not just of the, the people of Iran, but also of the border patrol people and the, and the, and the military police, all very friendly and helpful. And uh, that was really a warm moment for me to realize uh, uh, about this beautiful country, Iran. And I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, just yesterday, I was chatting to Shahin Fala, who lives in Iran and who's, as you described, the word hospitable must be the word that you have to associate with the Iranians. I've also had the same experience with the Iranian pilots. Uh, two years ago, I was there for their nationals and flew around. But on the first few days of being there, they definitely instructed me to land exactly where the pilot who was leading me um, uh, is landing. So I actually had to follow and be tag team, which is not my style at all. I like to push the bar as bloody hard as I can and try and beat Batiste to goal or Honorin for that matter. So, uh, which is close to impossible, actually. One last thing uh, I would like to... Uh... To address is that, um, and and this is for uh, our young pilots that uh, are starting uh, their their uh, paragliding, flying. Is um, that um, one of the best things to to improve your flying is uh, to um, to log flights on uh, sites like uh, X Contest and uh, Leonardo, and and to fly competitions and 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 uh, fly with a lot of experienced pilots and one of the pitfalls that you uh, that you can fall in is that you start to to concentrate too much on on the figures and the results and uh, and forget uh, what what your flying is all about having fun making beautiful flights uh, meeting new people and uh, and uh, also uh, hanging out with uh, old friends so let's not uh, focus on the the, the figures and the results, but focus on, on the beautiful moments that we uh, get to share together. I love that lesson. Thank you, Remco. Um, I really uh, think that there's lots to take away from that. Um, I find it a little bit two-sided, what you're saying. Um, upload your tracks onto uh, XE Contest. I do believe uh, that I have a little dispute with you on that one, but of course it would be for a big discussion. I think what it would, uh, would uh, maybe be is... Uh, a, don't forget that flying is just for fun. Um, don't forget that no sponsor is ever going to make you a millionaire. Don't forget that uh, you are, at the end of the day, only going to get a trophy and a kick in the ass and maybe a photo on the internet to be the winner of any one competition. You're not going to get more than that. But on the other hand, that doesn't stop you from the absolute enjoyment that we share in flying competitions, which I highly recommend beginner pilots get into. If you've never flown a competition, take the chance. Go for some of the fun competitions like the Gin Wide Open, which are going on at the moment. And Ozone have also launched such a thing. Of course, really, really nice. Do lots of searches on the internet. Check all that kind of stuff out. It's a delight to do those kind of things. And of course, I think, uh, Remco, you can add to this. Um, making every flight count. Um, not just having an aimless plan of going to the same mountain again and just flying around with absolutely no plan. At least set yourself a little task. Say, oh, if I could get under that little cumulus today, my heart would be warm. What do you say to that? Yes, so, well, actually one of the, the, the things I do uh, use is that I go on to X Contest, for example, and, and have a look at the flights that have been done there. They give me a little bit of inspiration to... Um, 
to do the flying for the day. So um, that's actually um, what I like about it. Yeah, I like that tip a lot. I mean, I fly hundreds and hundreds of new sites. I mean, I'm uh, bored extremely quickly. So for me, my big mission is to go around the world to, you know, of the hundred countries that I've visited, um, I have this unsatchable taste for travel and I, I have to take my paraglider with me. And if I see a place I can fly, I definitely want to be flying there. And of course, it helps a lot. And I've never thought of looking at people's exceed, uh, contest tracks before for that very site. But why not showing you what's possible, how far your reaches can be, what can it be attained easily? And all that stuff is just a few clicks away, isn't it? Yes. And also, when you look at the flights, it, it, it can also show you that or give you inspiration for, for a flight that uh, has never been done before. So um, actually, one, one really uh, nice flight I have had lately is a big tri triangle in Khao Sadao in um, close to Bangkok in, Thai uh, in Thailand and um, had all the right nice ingredients. And uh, you can uh, find it on my X Contest site. I wrote a little story along with it. And our last theme is a little on Corona. Fire away. I, to, ha to have a world which is perfectly safe, I mean, this is such, a, such an impossible thing to, to achieve. And, and it takes away uh, a lot of the fun of living that, 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 there, that there's no risk at all to be taken anymore. And, and, and people get so, so tied up with rules and regulations. I mean, if I look at the flying in the Netherlands, um, our, our um, how do you say that, uh, our flying um, union has advised mm -hmm. against flying. So we're still technically allowed, but we're just advised not to for whatever reason. And but mm -hmm. everybody takes it as as a as a rule. So everybody says it's not it's not allowed anymore. And and all the clubs yeah. have closed be, because yeah. they're scared they will be fined and and all that's that shit. And there's only like three guys in the in the Netherlands that are still winching. I mean it's terrible. And and there's possibilities enough. I mean I can see clearly that it's probably not very smart to do tandem operations. It's probably not very smart to to start to train students at the moment, but for God's sake, when we winch, we we're it's perfect. It's perfectly possible to do to play by all the Corona rules and still go winching, but but nobody's prepared to to go. Look, it's a hell of a catch twenty two. I mean, uh, of course, in South Africa we have the the rich and privileged and those who have nothing and shame for them. And how do you keep four people who share a shack? in 35 degrees temperature inside their shack, when inside the shack it's 45 degrees, and they are like in a sauna from morning to night, and tell them that they can't go for a walk, stretch their legs, when their usual lifestyle is being out and about, going to the drinking hall, having a beer, smoking a cigarette or a joint, and enjoying themselves and going to play. For us, the vast majority of people in South Africa live an extremely social life where they have a lot of interaction with one another. They, they're touching each other a lot. They are, you know, they're slapping each other on the back. And how are you going to stop four people, all four of them, from going out? Now you have a bigger problem because one of the four will go out for a drink. He'll have some back slapping and he'll catch corona. He'll bring it back into the hut. And then there's much, much more chance of the rest of the other three getting it. So, uh, you know, what harm is it for us to go kite surfing, paragliding, or ride a mountain bike when, you know, I, I spoke the other day of mental sanity of animals. For me, it's animal cruelty 
that a dog that's 11 or 15 years old who's walked every day non-stop like every single day by its owner is now trapped a great dane or a, a collie which is even worse in a small apartment in seapoint meanwhile that dog knows that every day at 4 p.m the owner comes back from work takes the dog out throws the ball and the dog has its pleasure for the day you know what the fuck yeah 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 very surprised actually and the interesting is that uh, on on dutch on our dutch television we had one uh, um, specialist in virology being interviewed by uh, by some network and um, actually the, the um, that news agent he asked like why is corona uh, become such a big deal and the 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 virologist he actually said well that you you are doing that the television and all the news they're blowing it up because one of the biggest problems I see at the moment is we're just uh, fighting the symptoms, right? We're doing mm-hmm. what's called in the Netherlands, we call it symptom bestrijding. So we're only looking looking at the results and trying to, to, to do something about that. And what we fail to do is, is to see where the whole thing comes from, right? And, and mm-hmm. that's, we are packing too many animals on, into a little place. I mean, we're, we're keeping thousands and thousands and thousands of, of chickens packed in, in, in one little place where, where the, the, the evolution of this virus can just go completely wild. And I, we're doing the same thing with pigs and cows. We've had, we, ha- we have mad cow disease. We had Q, a fever. We had uh, the, the bird flu. Oh. It's, it's all from packing too many animals in in two little places and yeah have you seen that movie game changers on netflix I have yeah it's pretty interesting it's quite a yeah. uh, actually a convincing one you know it's one that uh, can turn people around on this issue a lot yeah, yeah i really like that one and you know what one of the best parts i liked was about that south african uh, ra- uh game ranger that uh, was um that was really nice one yeah. Remgo, go well, my friend. Yes, you too. And uh, thanks for the invitation again. Okay. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.